So we're jumping back into the book of Acts this morning. Acts chapter 7, a rather lengthy chapter, has 60 verses in it. Uh, and those of you who know me know that I could spend the next three months just preaching on this one particular passage. But anyway, we're not going to do that. We're going to move ahead because I think it's important for us to consider everything the Bible teaches us and all that. But we always have to be moving ahead. We can't just get stuck in the same place and stay there for forever. So anyway, read with me if you would this morning, chapter 7. The high priest said, are these uh, things so? And Stephen said, just remember Stephen has been arrested and he's undergoing a very similar trial, something very similar to what Jesus went through. Brothers and fathers, uh, hear me. Uh, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Uh, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though they had no children. And God spoke to the elect that his offspring would be to the effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them uh, 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said, said God, uh, and after they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave uh, him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, uh, jealous of Joseph, sold him in Egypt. Uh, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and grateful affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out, his, uh, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went out into Egypt, and he died, and his fathers, uh, and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought uh, for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. And at this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him, out, uh, uh, brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came about, or it came, into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. 
And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At uh, this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when they... When 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the Lord, or the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now I come, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and the Red Sea and the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to, to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Jordan. Our fathers had the tents of witness in the wilderness, just, or the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it uh, in with Joshua, when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers, so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place in the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so, you, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Quite a mouthful. Just remember who Stephen is. He's one of those deacons that have just been appointed. Not an apostle, uh, but a deacon. What we have before us is his defense. And the only thing he does is this, is he rehashes, he recounts God's acts of redemption through history. God's redemptive history. You know me, and you know I could spend the next six months just preaching for this one chapter. But what I want us to do this morning uh, is to understand what is going on here, to understand the details to some degree. But what Stephen is doing here He's speaking to those who are supposedly in authority over the Jewish people, primarily to the priesthood. Just remember, he was one of those seven men that, uh, that uh, the apostles had told the congregation to, to kind of identify, and that they created this office, office of deacon, that, that, that uh, Stephen was one of the early deacons. I should have noticed something here. Is he very knowledgeable in the history of Israel? Yeah, yes. Uh, we probably wish we knew it as well as he did. Uh, and I want to say this this morning. That very often, you know, we, we, our church practices the idea that there are two offices in the church. One is the office of elder and the other is the office of deacon. But very often, people look upon the office of elder as being the superior office and the office of deacon being a more minor office. But one of the things I want to bring to your attention this morning is that God used a deacon in a very powerful way in this particular instance. And notice that he was very knowledgeable in the history of Israel. That's all it is. It's, it's basically he's, he's painting this picture of what history looks like for the Israel, Israelites, for the Jewish people. And it's a picture of God's faithfulness to them over and over again, and at the same time, their unfaithfulness to him. And Stephen has been arrested basically for the same, doing the same things that Jesus was doing. And those in authority don't like what he has said. Because it challenges them in ways that they don't wish to be challenged. What he does is he recounts redemptive history. All the things that God has done through the history of Israel to lead them up to the point where they were at on that particular day when they were gathered there, these men, 
who had arrested Stephen and who, who had putting, were putting Stephen on trial. And what you see over and over again is a history of two things. One of those is the history of the faithfulness of God. Over and over again. The other thing is you see that you see is the lack of faithfulness on the part of Israel to the covenant stipulations. Just a repetitive pattern that happens all the way through that Old Testament history. The point being this, even though God had been faithful to Israel down through the generations, Israel itself had not been faithful to him. With a few exceptions. The listing of the heroes of the faith. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the twelve patriarchs and Moses and David and Solomon. Failure. After Failure. In regard to the faithfulness of Israel to the God who set them apart. God sending those to help them along the way over and over and over again. If you study the Old Testament, what it is, is this. It's a history. It's a contrast of the faithfulness of God. At the same time, to a great degree, the unfaithfulness of God's people to him. With some exceptions. Another thing I'd like to say about Stephen this morning is this. He was, uh, he was not only preaching, he was not only speaking God's word, he was also apparently working miracles. We understand this, that Jesus, you know, his ministry had a lot to do with miracles. And, and one of the principal reasons for those miracles was to, to, to prove without a doubt that he was God's man to do this, these miraculous things among the people. Things that only God could do. Stephen is doing similar things to what Jesus did. Preaching the same stuff that, Steve, that Jesus preached. Healing people like Jesus healed people. And we understand that the miracles that we find all over the Bible serve a number of purposes. One of those very often is really relief to people that are suffering a great deal. That lame, lame man earlier on in the book of Acts that had been healed, that lame man from, from the time of his birth, had never been able to walk, and now he was up walking around. How could anybody deny that something magnificent actually taken place in their midst. 
But we understand this, that in, in, the, in the ministry of Jesus, miracles served a number of purposes. And one of those was to release suffering people very often. But another one was to validate the message that he spoke. Proof that he, in fact, was God's man. That when he spoke, he was speaking on God's behalf. Evidently, Stephen here was doing the same sorts of things. He was doing miraculous things. He probably was healing people. And let me tell you, as a deacon... Because they're supposed to do a lot of things, and one of those is to look after the sick. I would say that, deacon, that, that Stephen was probably the best prepared deacon there ever was. That he could do his job in a way that the typical deacon just can't. Provide a means for him to do his diaconal ministry exceptionally well. He concludes his rendition of, and very accurate rendition of Old Testament history with these words, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Well, in the Greek, you know, what we see translated here in the scripture before us, stiff-necked, can mean a number of different things. Stubborn, hardened, harsh, cruel, merciless. Now, how would you like it if someone described you as being any one of those or all of those things? Probably not a lot. What Stephen is doing here is painting a picture to show these people that they're not really any different than their ancestors who went before them. Well, very often you'll hear people today in the, in the New Testament church basically paint the picture that the, New, that the Holy Spirit is a New Testament phenomenon, that the whole Holy Spirit was not really present in the Old Testament. That just simply is not true. Psalm 51, verse 11, David pleaded with God, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Joshua was described as a man in whom the Spirit of God dwells. Othniel, remember him, he was one of the judges. The son of Canez, Caleb's brother, the spirit of the Lord was upon him. Of Ezekiel, the spirit entered me, and so on and so on and so on. So the real charge comes down to this that, that Stephen brings against these people, and that is this, is they've resisted the Holy Spirit all through history. 
And what he's saying to them right now in his defense is this, is right now you are still resisting the Holy Spirit. That is what you're guilty of. How are you doing that? You're doing it by rejecting what he has revealed and you are ignoring what he has said. Now, we're a Reformed church, and we don't talk about the Holy Spirit a lot here, and we probably should a lot more than we do. You go to charismatic churches, it's all about the Holy Spirit. It's almost like Jesus and, and the Father get lost in the fray. How often do you give thought to the Holy Spirit? Seriously. In Old Testament history, it was the Holy Spirit who spoke through the prophets. And what did the people often do to the prophets? They persecuted them, and very often they killed them. Because they simply did not like their message. Exactly what is going to happen to Stephen here. There's a sense in which Stephen is just a continuation of Old Testament prophetic office. Speaking forth to the people, the hard words, the words that people don't like to hear, the, the words that people don't want to hear, but the, people, the, but the very words that the people need to hear that they, in fact, must hear. The very people killed Jesus just weeks before. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him or they gnashed their teeth at him. Has anyone ever accused you, accused you of gnashing your teeth? It's not a word that we use very often today. It is a biblical word can mean a number of things. It can mean to strike your teeth together, that sort of thing. In other words, what I would say to you is they're gnashing their teeth. They're doing it to make a noise, and the purpose of the noise is to drown what Stephen is saying out so people can't hear it. It's also an expression of anger. Jesus describes hell basically like this. The children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness, so outer darkness, where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sounds to me like he's saying in part that that in hell the anger of the people there will not subside. That it will continue on. 
the sound of it will be deafening. Perhaps one of the tortures of hell will be the incessant gnashing of teeth. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing. Wouldn't you love to see that? At the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. There are psalms and other passages in scripture that talk about the presence of the Lord in heaven. Psalm 110 verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. God the Father speaking to God the Son. What I want you to glean from this is that Jesus' normal posture in heaven is sitting on his throne sitting on his throne. In this particular passage before us, Jesus is not described as sitting. He's standing. In other words, what is got going on right now has gotten Jesus' special and real and full attention. Stephen is about to suffer. And the eyes of heaven will be on him. And we understand that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was there with him, strengthened him, encouraged him. Enabled him to do that which he could not do apart I want to remind us this morning that, that, that Jesus is likewise our heavenly advocate that nothing nothing happens in your life that Jesus knows nothing about he's aware of all of it he sees everything he understands it even far better than you do and there's nothing in your life that takes place that Jesus cannot fix just by speaking the words. Can you be, imagine being the focal point of an angry mob that wants nothing but to murder you? They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him, and they stoned him outside the city. Stephen, perhaps the first martyr of the church after Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus was crucified. Stephen, on the other hand, was stoned. Stoning was the Jewish way of executing people. And as horrible as the crucifixion, 
or, or the cross would be. Can you imagine what it would be like to stand there and people just throw stones at you until you're dead? Stephen was not the last one to be martyred. We sit on the other end of a history of the Christian church that in essence could be described as the history of martyrdom. So many of our brothers and sisters in the past and even today as we said a couple of weeks ago, we have every reason to believe that just during the time that we've, we have this worship service today, any day, that we've had a brother or sister or more brothers and sisters in Christ give their very life just simply because they won't shut up about Jesus. There is truth in the saying that the blood of the martyrs is the history of the church. Countless multitudes of brothers and sisters through history have given their very life. For the truth that God has spoken. John will be the only one of the apostles that does not suffer martyrdom. But that does not mean that John didn't suffer. He lived to be a relatively old man, but he suffered a great deal physically because of the abuse he had suffered at the hands of people who persecuted him. The good old U.S. of A., we can't imagine anything like that ever happening to us. We're free to do what we're doing this morning. It's guaranteed to us by our Constitution. But we understand things seem to be slipping and sliding in the very wrong direction right now. And one of the things I would see, you'd say, well, what are the causes of it? What are the reasons for it? I'd say one of the reasons for it is this, is the church is beginning to lose its influence in this culture. It's inconceivable to you and I this morning that anybody today would be martyred for their faith in the good old U.S. of A., stoned to death or hung or something. That we understand that if things continue in the, the manner they seem to be going, that that is not inconceivable in the future. There are people in this nation today that would be angry as all get out if they knew who you were and where you were and what you were doing. They would take it away from you in a heartbeat if they possibly could. Well, we know that there were a lot of people that were truly affected by the, the, all the events that took place around the last days of Christ. I mean, we see, we've seen this in the book of Acts, the tens of thousands of people coming to faith in Jesus. Some of whom quite likely had been in the crowd demanding that he be crucified. 
mean, there's truth. That the blood of the martyrs is the seat of the church. That where, where, where the world tries to snuff the church out, it fails. Now, really, the only thing these guys want to do, they not necessarily want to, maybe they really do want to murder him, but at the same time, they just want him to shut up. Stop doing, stop saying. But on the tail end of it, it appears as though there were people in this crowd that he was, t- he was teaching and preaching to who came to faith in Jesus. And partly because of the greatness of his witness. His willingness to put his life on the line for his faith. He spoke to them in a way that nothing else would. Can you believe it? Stephen cries out to God, and it's not, God, save me from this, protect me from this, ease me from my affliction, take this pain away from me. He cries out on behalf of these people who are stoning him to death. And he says this, do not hold this sin against them. See, Stephen is acting as an intercessor. Speaking to God on behalf of his very executioners. They're also called to intercede. On behalf of others before the judgment seat of Christ. What better way there is for us to do that than to pray for the salvation of other people? People who have not yet bent the knee to Christ. Is there a list of people that you know that are yet unbelieving that you pray for regularly? I'm sure that for most of you, maybe all of you, there is. But let me tell you, if you don't have anyone that you're praying for their salvation, I want to say, what is wrong with you? When are you going to start doing one of the things that Christ has called you to do? And it's a very simple thing. It's not hard. You don't even have to do it in public. People, other people don't even have to hear you. Something we all should be engaged in. And let me tell you, very often we think about, look, this thing, so so and so, what a great Christian they would make. They, they almost like, act like a Christian already. But you know what gets the world in a way that nothing else does? And that is when someone comes to faith who no one in the world would ever think would come to faith. The least likely candidate for the kingdom of God. It happens more often than we care to think. 
We are Calvinists. We are Reformed. In other words, we believe very strongly in the very same things that Martin Luther and all those other people did in the Protestant Reformation. That is the heart and soul of things for us. We understand that God is absolutely sovereign. The things that are actually taking here place with Stephen are things that God determined would take place a long time before it actually happened. Can we understand it? Maybe to some degree, but not very well. God does move in mysterious ways now, doesn't he? And he doesn't owe an explanation to us ever for anything that he does or doesn't do. He's not someone that's supposed to run to our bidding. It's supposed to be the other way around. <laughs> Everyone else believes that every event that takes place is just simply the result of fate. But we understand the Bible very clearly teaches that God has foreordained absolutely everything that comes to pass, and that means you coming to salvation in Christ Jesus. Of him bringing you to the point where you did it, but if you hadn't, if he hadn't done that, you never would have. Why? So we will know that we owe our salvation 100, absolutely 100% to him, not to me, myself, and I. Sometimes people will describe Reformed folks as being fatalists. If you think that's what we're talking about here, then you don't understand what we're talking about here. God has not only foreordained the end, he has also foreordained the means. And very often we are the means. And by being those means, then we are unbelievably blessed sometimes. God has blessed us in that we play a vital role in what he is doing without which his perfect will and purpose would not be served. That is not something to be prideful and puffed up about. Rather, it is something to celebrate in our lives and in our world. If God could use Stephen like he did, he can do the same thing with each one of us.
God will always give you what you need. He always will. I learned this lesson early on. A friend of mine and I, we went to visit a person that had visited the church one time, and we didn't know where they stood with Christ, and we went with them, and first time we either one of us had ever done anything like that. And I can remember standing in the driveway of their house when we got to, we went to visit him, the man, this man and his wife one evening and standing there, we're both scared to death. What are we going to say? What are we going to say that they're not going to take the wrong way? And let me tell you, we went into that room, both of us was, were, were trembling Sweaty palms, you know, whole thing. I, I, I would have rather been any place on the planet right then than not in that place. But we did what we were called to do. We shared the gospel with this man and his wife. In the end, we asked him, would you like for us to pray for you? And they said yes, and we were stupefied. God doesn't ask all that much from us. But faithfulness. Because he shows us over and over again his faithfulness to us. You understand there's a sense in which every one of us, at least to some degree, is called to be another Stephen. Who shows himself to be faithful. May we be